Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, dear saints of God. Dear saints of God in here and dear saints of God out there, good morning to you. Um, what are we going to do now? We're done with finding God in the music for a year. Uh, well, believe it or not, I've come up with some stuff to preach on. And uh, it's going to be in the beginning, finding Jesus in Genesis. That's what we're going to do from now until November. Seven Weeks. I said six weeks last week, but seven's a better number. And so we're going to do uh, Finding Jesus in Genesis for seven weeks. We'll look at the stories of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in coming weeks. But this week we're going to start with creation. That's where we start. And our goal is not just to hear these stories, but to learn how to read the Old Testament so that we find Jesus in these stories or find Jesus in Genesis. Amen. So, shall we begin? Oh, dang it. Now, now when I do this, you just got to jump up and tell me. Don't, don't wait. <laughs> See, it's the mask thing. I take the mask off and... Okay, I just I was telling I was telling the uh, worship team before service how you got to rehearse everything. Put your put your mic on, Brian. <laughs> Start over. I'm not starting over. I'm not starting over. Finding Jesus in Genesis. We're gonna tell stories. It's gonna be like it's gonna be like you know Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We're gonna start with creation. Okay, that was my reading. Now shall we begin? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? This is the beginning of the Bible. It's perhaps the most famous verse in the most famous book in the world. People who have never touched a Bible still know in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, this is the beginning, but it's not where we begin. Not if we're going to read Bible as Christians. Despite what you might think, the starting point or the foundation for Christian faith is not the Bible. We don't start with in the beginning and then, you know, a thousand pages later, get to Jesus. No, we begin with Jesus. Jesus is our Alpha and Omega. We start with Him. Why? Because that's our foundation. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. So we read the Bible a little bit different than people might think. We don't start with Genesis, we start with Jesus. And then we understand how to read the text. So 
This is called a Christian reading of the Old Testament. That's why we call it the Old Testament. Uh, what is the Old Testament? Well, it's the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. But as Christians, we read it in a different way. It's not the only way to read it. I'm not making that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that claim. I say it's how Christians read the Hebrew Bible. We read it through a lens of Jesus Christ. That's how we read it. So, where does this practice, though, of reading the Old Testament through the interpretive lens that when it's all said and done, it's all about Jesus. Where does that come from? That comes from Jesus himself. So we're going to start in Luke 24, and then we'll go to Genesis, all right? So Luke 24, this is resurrection account. This is the first Easter. Jesus is on the Emmaus Road with two disciples who don't know yet, but are soon going to discover that the stranger walking with them is the risen Christ. And he says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted... See, the Bible has to be interpreted. The, the Bible has to be interpreted. You can say, well, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that says it. No, you have to interpret it because you just do. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. That's what he says on the road to Emmaus. And then later that evening in the upper room with the gathered disciples, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's, that's what we call the Old Testament. Everything written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so if we can't see Christ in the Scripture, we don't have much to say about it. But we continue to try to find Jesus in Scripture because he says, all the things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they're fulfilled in me, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And so as Christians, we have our mind opened by Christ to then go into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and all of that and understand what we're reading in the light of Christ. Jesus taught his disciples how to interpret Moses, the prophets, the Psalms in his light. So let me say it this way. We don't use the Old Testament to, un to interpret Christ. We look to Christ to interpret the Old Testament. But that's said, uh, we don't use the Old Testament to interpret Christ. Rather, we look to Christ to interpret the Old Testament. Now, for the first several generations of Christians, their Bible is what we call the Old Testament. The first several generations of Christians, because the New Testament was in the process of being composed. I mean, the Gospel of John probably wasn't written to almost the end of that first century. So Jesus is raised around the year 30, something like that. And the Gospel of John is, is penned somewhere in the 90s. Well, that's 60 years. And then the, the Gospels were all written around the 70s, 80s, 90s. And so for the, the first several generations of Christians... Uh, their Bible is what we call the Old Testament because, because the, scriptures, the New Testament scriptures were in the process of being penned. And then there was the process of people recognizing, oh, this is, this is our text. This is our sacred text. This is canonical scripture for Christians. And so 
what they had as Scripture was what we call the Old Testament. Uh, but Jesus was their foundation. Jesus was their Lord. Jesus was their light. Jesus was their truth. Jesus was their everything. And so what are they doing with the Old Testament? They're looking for Jesus. So we don't start within the beginning. We start with it is finished and then work back. Are you with me? See how this works? We don't start within the beginning. We start with it is finished and then we go back and we, we can understand the beginning. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Right? I mean, you've seen Sixth Sense and... You, you, you are not tracking right. You're, you're hearing the story. You're saying, I know, I know what's going on. I know what's going on. I know what's on. And then at the end, you go, I never knew what was going on the whole time. <laughs> That's the way it is with Christians and Jesus in the Old Testament. We think we know what's going on. See, if, if, if we just start, if we just start with the Old Testament and say, oh, we don't understand until we get to the end. And then we have to go back and it's the second reading in the light of Christ that it, you know, is understood. So if we read the Old Testament as only predating Christ, and we're just kind of waiting around for a, a thousand pages to get to Jesus, um, we're reading it wrong. Instead, we have to see Christ as being deeply anticipated and even foreseen in the Scriptures. So we read Christ as the Creator, as the new Adam, as Noah's Ark, as Abraham's sought-after city. As Isaac's ram caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah. As the ladder set up between heaven and earth that Jacob saw. As foretold in the life of Joseph. That's how we find Jesus in Genesis. All right. With that foundation laid, um, we can start th talking about Genesis. By the way, this is the way the apostles clearly read the Old Testament. And it's the way the church fathers read it. Origen and Augustine both called this the spiritual reading. And what they, what they meant by that was, well, in fact, Augustine just says a literal reading of Genesis is a carnal reading. That's what St. Augustine said, that a literal reading is a fleshy reading. He said we have to read it spiritually as communicating spiritual truths about Christ himself. And with that foundation, then we start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved over the face of the deep. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, not only do we find Jesus in the beginning of Genesis, if we know how to read it right, we find the entire Trinity in the first three verses of the Bible. In the beginning there was God, and the Spirit moved, and the Word, the Logos, said. See, God said, God speaking, who is that? That's the Word of God. Who is the Word of God? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So Christ as the Logos of God, as the second person in the Godhead, is the agent of creation. He's the Logos, the Word. So the, 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 Jesus is what God has to say. And as God speaks, that is the action of the Logos who we come to understand as Jesus Christ. And that's why the Gospel of John gives us a second 
telling of creation, this time in the light of Christ. So John knows how the Bible begins, in the beginning, in the beginning. And he's going to begin his gospel the same way, but he's going to say, we understand more now. Then the way it was first written in Genesis, we can say it more clearly. And so John says it like this. In the beginning was the word logos. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very sophisticated, complex word. It, it means word, but it means more than that. It's bigger than that. It's word. It's idea. It's wisdom. It's logic. I think of it, it's, as, it's God's understanding of God's self. All right, so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. And so John starts his gospel by hearkening back to Genesis 1, 1, but he says, I want you to understand that when we see God creating, we are in fact seeing the action of the Word, and then you know, in John's gospel, he gets down to verse 14 and says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we know him as Jesus. So, the eternal Son of God does not come eons after creation. Rather, the Son is the Creator. Christ, the Son of God, the Logos, is co-eternal and co-equal with God. That's like basic Christian theology that was established from the very beginning. That the second person of the Trinity, Logos, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. This is how the apostles and the church fathers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, came to understand Jesus. So Paul writes it like this. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The actual word there is icon. So icon is, is something that reflects an image gives us an image. Jesus Christ is the icon or the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is not a creature within creation because he is co-eternal and co-equal with God. Rather, he has the position of preeminence. He has authority over all creation. Christ is the ruler of creation. He's the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created in the heavens and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. Or we can say it this way, all creation is the handiwork of Christ. All creation is the handiwork of Christ. Before Christ was a carpenter, he was the creator of the cosmos. Which is a way to understand the humility of the Son of God. That the one who is the creator of the cosmos. And as, you know, science progresses, we begin to find out how fantastic, how complicated, how enormous is this cosmos. And Christ is the creator of that. But he condescends to become a carpenter in a little village called Nazareth in Galilee. Before Christ was the carpenter, he was the creator of the cosmos. And Genesis 1 gives us a poetic account of a six-day, six-stage, six-epoch, whatever you want to call it, account of creation. Now, there are two tellings. There are, two, there, are, there are two creations. There's Genesis 1, 
tells it one way, and then Genesis 2 comes along and tells it somewhat differently. The main points are all the same. But, for example, you, you, Genesis 1, you start with light and everything, and then the, the, very, the very end of creation is Adam. In Genesis 2, it starts with Adam and then everything else. Because, remember, this is theology. This is a spiritual reading. They're trying to communicate spiritual truths, not give you a history lesson. And so, we, so Genesis 1 starts with light and everything else, and then, and then the culmination is Adam, or humankind. But Genesis 2 tells it a different way because the focus is, in Genesis 2, the focus is much more on humankind. And so it starts with humankind, and then everything else is created after. We'll look at that next week when we look at Adam and Eve. All right, so it works like this. There's six days of creation, and everything's in harmony and balance. So day one is light and dark. Day two, sky and water. Day three, land and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. There's a triplet on on, uh, day four, sun and moon and stars. Day five, bird and fish. Day six, animals and humans. And so you see, there's a, a harmony, there's balance, there's kind of, so it's day one, light and dark, day two, sky and water, day three, lands and plants, day four, sun, moon, and stars, day five, bird and fish, day six, animals and people. But what we don't hear is a dualism of good and evil. It's light and dark, bird and fish, soil and plant, but not good and evil. And this is completely unique because all of the other creation texts from the ancient world, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, all of them, all of them have this in common, that creation contains a dualism of good and evil. That in the creation event, good and evil are created. But the Jews... Being given revelation, the Holy Spirit at work among these people realize that no, there is no evil in the beginning of creation. Rather, creation springs out of all goodness, and it's all good. It's all good. Somebody say, it's all good. Now, this is, this is radically unique to the Bible in ancient literature. Only the Bible does that. Everyone else says, in the beginning, good and evil. The Bible says, in the beginning, it's all good. So, with, create, with the six days of creation, we're told over and over, God said, and then God saw, because the creative process is the Word of God, Christ speaking. God said, and then God saw, and what did God see? God saw it was good. It says it every time. So God says, let there be light. There's light and dark. God saw it and said, it's good. Second day, let there be sky and water. God sees it. It's good. The third day, uh, it is good is pronounced twice. God calls the land good and he calls the vegetation good. So the third day has a double blessing. It's pronounced. And that's, that's why uh, the ancient Jewish practice, and we still see it when we're in Israel, uh, is to have weddings on the third day. Remember John 2? And on the third day, we call it Tuesday, on the third day there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee. When we, whenever we go to Israel, we, on Tuesdays we will see weddings in parks and stuff like that. Because they say, oh, that's an auspicious day to get married because 
God said twice it's good. Fourth day, uh, sun, moon, and stars, it's good. Fifth day, birds and fish, it's good. Sixth day, animal and human, it's good. We get to the end of the sixth day of creation and we're told, then God saw everything he had made and indeed it was very good. Nothing evil, nothing wrong, nothing sinful. It's all very good. So, if all creation is the handiwork of Christ, and all creation as the handiwork of Christ is good, what should our attitude be toward creation? Well, I think it should be obvious. I think we know that the creation of Christ must be cherished and cared for. Now, we'll talk about this next week, but remember the original human vocation was to be a gardener and care for the good creation that comes from Christ. Amen. So our attitude toward creation must be that it is to be cared for and cherished. I mean, you wouldn't walk into the carpentry shop of Jesus and Nazareth and start trashing the place. You wouldn't walk into the carpentry shop of Jesus of Nazareth and dump your garbage and then tell Jesus, don't worry about it, it's all going to burn. You, you wouldn't, you know, find something that Jesus was building there in his carpentry shop and smash it to pieces and say, oh, don't worry about it, it's all going to... You wouldn't do that, would you? No, you would not do that. You would not do that. I know you would not do that. So, um, likewise, we must treat creation with cherished respect. Because if our attitude and actions toward creation are not one of cherishing, then, then what, what happens is, if we don't nurture that attitude, we, we, we can slip into, because it's part of sin, we, we see creation as something to be exploited. Something to be selfish about. Something to only use for our own benefit, and that almost always means monetary benefit. I want to say it like this. If our attitudes and action toward creation are one of uncaring exploitation, it indicates somewhere deep within us a wrong attitude toward Christ. Or if I was going to be blunt about it, I would just say to be anti-creation is to be anti-Christ. Because it's all very good. And it's the work of Christ. So where do we find Jesus in Genesis? We find him as the creator. And we cherish creation because we love the creator. I mean, your children or your grandchildren don't bring you something they've made, some handiwork, and, and then you tear it up or treat it disrespectfully. You, 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 you put it on the refrigerator. That's what refrigerators are mostly for. You put it on the refrigerator. And of course, it may or may not actually be a great work of art, but the creation of Christ indeed is a great work of art. And so we, we respect it. We appreciate it. We are thankful for the artist who is the creator Christ for giving us this beautiful creation. And by the way, the creator Christ is also the redeemer Christ. Don't go down the Gnostic path and think that salvation is Jesus saving parts of people for another world. No, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Yes, he's saving your soul. Amen. I believe that. But he's not just saving your soul. He's saving all of creation. That's what Romans 8 is all about. 
that something has gone wrong and creation groans under the weight of it. Oh, waiting for redemption, waiting for the bondage to decay, the Apostle Paul says, to be broken and that creation can be liberated into the fullness of glory that Christ intends. And so Christ is not only the creator of creation, he is also the redeemer of creation. So don't, don't go down a wrong path of bad eschatology and think that what God's going to do is destroy this. No, no, no. He's going to make it new. He's going to renew it. But that which he said in the beginning is good and it will be good and it's going to recover full goodness because this is what Christ does. And so this informs how we think about creation. Amen. Now, uh, a year ago, a year ago right now, Right now, exactly a year ago, Perry and I were beginning our third Camino. And this is our long walk we take. A 500-mile walk across that part of creation, the creation of Christ that we know as northern Spain. 500-mile walk across northern Spain. And it's 40 days. That's how long we take to do it. And uh, you're, you're... you're out in creation. Every day, all day. Even when we finally got to it, we would, we were just, you know, we would only go inside basically to sleep. And so we are very attentive. And we're in creation. And the first day you you cross the Pyrenees, and it's almost indescribably beautiful. You know, I, I Perry and I see pictures of it, and we have sudades. That's, that's the Portuguese word for this inexplicable uh, longing and yearning and a memory that's both pleasurable and painful at the same time. And so we're crossing the Pyrenees, and it's, it's, beautiful. it's, it's a beautiful day. It's not always. It's, it's a mountain pass. It can be terrible, but it was beautiful. And uh, the, the, the mountains and the, and the hillsides covered with flocks of sheep. And we're, we're every day, and, and we're, we're, because we're doing this in a contemplative way, we're doing this in the name of Jesus, we are, we are deliberately cultivating an awareness, you see. And we're paying attention, and we're seeing the sky. We're seeing the mountains. We're, when, when we're in the Pyrenees, we're paying attention to the beauty of the mountains and those wild horses and, those, and, the, and the sheep. And then, then you come down into Rioja and the... And the vineyards there, and we walk through miles and miles and miles and dozens and scores of miles of vineyards, and we see the beauty of it. We get into the Meseta, this long plain that's filled with, with corn and wheat fields, and we're, we're noticing the beauty of it. And then we, then we get, go back up into the mountains of Galicia, where we saw a wolf. I've never seen How many of you have seen a wolf in the wild? I have. And it was, it, there'd been a big storm the night before. It was still kind of, it wasn't raining anymore, but it was stormy because that's what you do. You know, it's, you walk every day. If it's hot, you're hot. If it's cold, you're cold. If it rains, you're wet, you know. If it's windy, you get blown about. It's just, you're just in it, in it. And uh, we were coming down the mountain from Osibrero and a wolf crossed our path and it was thrilling. I, I want to call it the wolf of Gubbio. I mean, that that's, should be in Italy, but maybe that wolf went on the Camino. <laughs> and then on day 37, on day 37, 
Let me tell you about day 37. We're almost to the end. Day 37. It rained all day. Hard. All day. Literally. It never stopped. And when we're getting close to the ocean, you can have these, these fronts that come in and just, it just pours all day. And it was right between 42 and 45 degrees. Rain all day. I took one picture from that day. I couldn't take any others because my hands were too cold. And, and, and your phone doesn't work, you know, when it's pouring rain. But I wanted one, so I got one picture. And that's what it looked like for 16 miles. <laughs> we walked 16 miles and it was just pouring, pouring rain. And... Uh, we were, and it's kind of your part where it's just like village. Every two miles, there's a little village, just village to village to village. And Perry's, to be truth be told, she likes to stop. <laughs> you know, she she'll stop and smell the roses and pick the roses and create bouquets of roses. And but Perry didn't want to stop. I said, "You want to stop at this?" Nope. And and nobody's talking. I mean, the the peregrinos, the pilgrims out there, we're all just hiding inside of our our rain jackets. We're just kind of huddled down, and you're just going. Nobody's talking. And I would just, you want to stop? Want to stop? I mean, she didn't even say anything. She just doesn't stop. She just keeps going. <laughs> she just keeps going. Finally, though, after about 10 miles, I mean, we'd had like a tiny breakfast because they don't, they're, they're, there's a reason why they're called continental breakfasts. <laughs> So we just had a tiny breakfast. Now we walk 10 miles and freeze. And finally, we're going to stop. We go into this little cafe in this little village. And I, I tell you, it was, it was 15 minutes before my hands were, they were so numb I couldn't unzip. <laughs> I said, can you unzip this? I can't. And we never got warm. We sat in there for 45 minutes and never got warm. We were still, and we oh, we got to go back out there. And we go out and we've got about six more miles to go. And I tell you the truth, there was this one moment when we were going through this village and I saw the, the rain cascading like a waterfall off of a tile roof of a building that was centuries old. And I said, Jesus, this is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's cold, but it's beautiful. And it's all beautiful. And I won't wish this moment away. I, w- I want to be in this moment with you And I thank you for creation. I thank you for rain. I thank you for heat and cold. I thank you for the phenomenon of being. And it was was one of the most pure moments of worship, I think, in my life. And that day was cold. And there was like some suffering involved in that sense. But it's the day that we think about the most. And Perry and I always remember it as a good day. We look back on that day and what do we say? We say it was good. It wasn't bad. It was good. And uh, the, for the last three days of the Camino, when you'd, or the last two days, you'd see other peregrinos and you'd say, where were you yesterday? What was it like for you? And it's funny. Everybody knew it was hard and it was cold and it was uncomfortable, but they also knew there was glory in it. Because Christ is the creator. And it's his creation. And it's good. It's been marred. Sin has crept in. But the creation itself is holy. And it's beautiful. And it's good. And I encourage you to cultivate that kind of awareness. And no, you don't have to walk to Camino to do that. 
I saw it today, just driving in, about 7 o'clock. And there was, the sun was coming up, but, but there was also the fog still there, nestled down in places. And, and I just worshiped. I said, thank you, Jesus. You're an artist. It's beautiful. I love it all. I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want you to stand up with me. And I want us to worship Christ as the creator in a prayer called Song of Creation. Glorify the Lord, all you works of the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. In the firmament of His power, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord, you angels and all powers of the Lord. O heavens and all waters above the heavens, sun and moon and stars of the sky, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord every shower of rain and fall of dew, all winds and fire and heat, winter and summer, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord, O chill and cold, drops of dew and flakes of snow, frost and cold, ice and sleet, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord, O nights and days, O shining light and enfolding dark, storm clouds and thunderbolts, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Let the earth glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord, O mountains and hills, and all that grows upon the earth. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord, O springs of water, seas and streams, O whales and all that move in the waters, all birds of the air, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Glorify the Lord, O beasts of the wild, and all you flocks and herds, O men and women everywhere, glorify the Lord. Praise Him and highly exalt Him forever. Amen. Do you feel the holiness of it? Do you feel the, the holiness? We, we live in a temple. We live in a holy tabernacle created by Christ. And to love creation is to love Christ. He is the creator. So where do we find Jesus in Genesis? Well, first of all, we find him as the creator. We'll look at the stories of Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we'll find Christ there. But from the very beginning we find out that we are living in a holy temple because it is the creation of Christ. Amen. Join with me in praying our prayer of confession as we prepare our hearts to receive Holy Communion. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. 
we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven.